0: to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. Uh, With us today is Professor Kiron Brady. Kiron is a professor of uh, essentially Elizabethan Irish history, or Tudor Irish history, although he's an unusual historian because he also has a very strong interest in other historians from all eras. So unlike, I suppose, most historians, he has two two very distinct interests. One is uh, the period from about 1500 to about 1600, and the other is, how and why do historians can apply their trade? What, what, what drives them? What blinded them? Uh, and why? So we're going to talk about both those things. Welcome, Kieran. Hello. Glad to be here. Well, Kieran, let let's start with, with a very basic question. You've spent your, your entire working life really teaching
1: history. Why, why do you think people should study history? Um, I, I think people should study history because if they don't study it, history will come and get them. I mean, I think one of the things that is somewhat um, simplistically assumed about history is that if you, don't, if you ignore it, uh, it'll go away. But it doesn't. And in fact, the less attention one pays to it, the more is imprisoned by history. So It seems to me there's a great difference between history understood as the inheritance of the past and history uh, understood as the critical interrogation of what we've inherited from the past. And oftentimes it seems to me that these two things are confused. Uh, there are um, there are those who, um, who simply like history. You know, I like a little bit of history and so on. And that strikes me as being really a rather dangerous indulgence. Uh, because of course history is indifferent to you whether you like it or not. Um, it's bit like money. But don't love money, it won't love you back. Won't lo- 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 history, won't, it won't love won't no, you back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it'll probably get you. Yeah. Um, and it does that in s- subtle ways. Um, there's a kind of sentimentalism that some people have about the past, when they sort of like to see something old. And i have nothing against that. Um, and there are plenty of people who enjoy antiquarianism, and that's, I think, perfectly proper, as long as one is conscious about it. More dangerous is the uncritical assumption uh, that the past was simpler than the present, and that it was by and large nicer, you know, Dublin in the rare old times, and you could substitute any other place or any other period uh, for that kind of phrase. Uh, And and it seems to me that that does violence not only to the past, but it, it, it sets up a juxtaposition between the complexities of the present, which, oh, we don't know anything about... And um, the simplicity of the past without paying proper attention to the reality that the present is a direct inheritor of the past.
0: And yet, I've heard you say, Kieran, you 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 shouldn't study history to, to learn from it per se. You know, you, you don't think it's a way of avoiding mistakes.
1: Yeah. yeah. But you think it's a way of thinking about the situation that you're in? That well, I think that can be done. I mean, there is, a, there is a kind of approach to history, which you see, by the way, in, in things like political science or historical sociology, where they rummage through the past for instances of, say, rebellions, coup d'etats, uh, parliamentary crises, and say, what happened here and what happened there? Machiavelli is the first actually to do that. And I think it has its place. Um, but it is uh, freighted with risk as well. Because of course, um, history doesn't repeat itself, mm. and people who think that you can re- that you are replicating the same circumstances um, in the present as existed, say, in the 16th century or the 18th century, um, are really oversimplifying greatly. Um, I think I think it is. Uh, I would never prohibit people from doing this, but I, what I would is counsel caution and say that. There is no real repetition of events and that's precisely because the events themselves had set in train a whole sequence of further events which necessarily separate us out from the past. So
0: it's just not possible. Um,
1: I wouldn't like to rule it out. <laughs> some of my best friends are political scientists. Um, but no, I'm saying it's an enterprise that should be undertaken with great caution.
0: Tell me, what do you think are the qualities of a good historian? Like if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, maybe I'll study history in Trinity or some other university, what, what should they ask themselves about whether they're suited to studying history? Because it's a big decision to spend four years it doing is. this. It uh, is,
1: yeah. it is. Um, well, I would like, I would start and say curiosity. Um, why did this happen? What are we doing here? How do we get to be where we were? But I think even more importantly than that is a sense of criticism. Yes, and really a, a somewhat assertive sense of criticism that says, why should I believe any of this stuff? Uh, how are we being presented with these kinds of problems? Um, Sometimes people think that historians, that history and people who study history must be terribly boring, accumulating facts and saying, oh, look, look at what happened in 1815 and then this, I know more about what happened in 1816. But actually the proper attitude of a historian should be liberationist. Say, I didn't want this to happen in the first place, I wished it had never happened, uh, but now that it has happened, how are we going to deal with it? So I, I think that the, the proper attitude uh, toward history should be critical and assertive irreverent. Uh, yes, and certainly mm-hmm. that. I, I think it's a good place to start that it shouldn't have happened at all, but mm, given the fact that it did happen, we have to cope with it. So that I think is a, is, um, a central attitude: assertion, criticism, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a willingness um, not to accept received ideas, and a willingness not to uh, 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 simply indulge in um, knowledge about the past. A critical you to how that knowledge is put together. There's one other thing I'd like to add to mm. it, and that is a sensitivity to language. Okay. What do you think of the... Uh, what I'm thinking you know, of there is that one of the m- ways, it seems to me, in which history cannot repeat itself is that language moves through time. And the way people express themselves in the 16th century or the 12th century is very different to the way they express themselves in the 18th century or the 20th century or the 21st century. And we must be attuned to that. Um, now, I say language, but I could also say that uh, concepts are yeah. things ideas. Yeah. But the ideas are wrapped up in, lang- in linguistic structures. And, and I think it is very good for the historian to always say, why does this Where does this word come from? I'll I'll give you a couple of examples of of, of this, which I've come across in in my own researches. Um, In in the 16th century, um, people who thought about their place in the public world, Machiavelli again comes into this, were very much preoccupied with the concept of virtue, uh, which meant um, strength, strength, the ability to stand up for your beliefs and to take risks and so on. Didn't This mean, is
0: virtue spelled V-I-R-T-U, T-U, isn't it? Without yeah. the now, look how, different look how the word yep.
1: has changed and softened in in its tone. I mean, it really is closely connected with virile in the 16th century. I mean, it's what a man should do. Um, but but through the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, virtue gets softened and softened. That's a woman of easy virtue with which is, you know, almost a contradiction in terms. That's one. Honour is another one. People would um, um, attempt to kill one another with jewels if they felt that their honour was besmirched. In, in, in other words, uh, if somebody um, um, was bad mannered at a table, if somebody spoke to, to a social superior without being given permission to do that, this would be seen as a, as a sullying of somebody's honour, and trouble would ensue. Now that's disappeared. Mm. Well, in this part of the world. Yes, in this part, yeah. yeah. And and, and so people wouldn't wouldn't do this Mm. anymore. There are more recent terms um, that I think, uh, duty, I think is something that the Victorians were um, deeply preoccupied with. George Eliot, in a wonderful phrase, I hope I can remember this now, she said, When I was young, I I believed in um, God, I believed in the prospect of eternity, and I believed in the necessity of duty. Now I know the first is impossible, the second is intolerable, but the third is inescapable. Uh, And so she, even though all the struts of received religion uh, were falling away, she still believed in virtue. Sorry, in duty. Uh, And that's, it seems to me, we we won't understand the Victorians Mm. unless we interrogate that word. Mm. And for the 20th century, there's another word that I I think is interesting. That's decency. And look how that's been softened uh, over time. I mean, in the early 20th century, if you said somebody was decent, or worse, indecent, this is very strong. And now that's been softened away to, ah, he's a decent fella, which, which means something rather soft and deep. The way in which words it's are almost used... almost slightly pejorative, actually. It is, I mean, yes, soft and again. Yep. The way in which words are used is, is a clue to the way in which history is changing. So that's mm-hmm. something I would want um, a, somebody beginning the study of history to be attentive to, the history of words.
0: I think uh, concepts are important as well. I, I should have said at the outset perhaps that, that you taught me history yeah. a, a while ago and mm-hmm. one of the best books uh, you ever recommended to me was something called something like The Elizabethan World. Taught. And, yeah. yeah, and it, it was this really idea that in the Elizabethan mind everything is connected from yes. a cockroach all the way you through to it. God. And, and when you read Shakespeare, when you read anything that was written and once you know that you see it. Yes. He's constantly linking everything to in a way that yes. we just don't do anymore. We see everybody as an individual. Yes. And they didn't. They saw everybody as tied. tied. They They had had a
1: universal picture. And although it had its moving parts, when things moved and the spheres Mm -hmm. turned around, it was whole. And it was guided by one supreme will. Um, Of course, God. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting about Shakespeare, and one one of the reasons that I teach a course on um, the Elizabethan Renaissance, is that Shakespeare is part of that generation for whom that world picture began to dissolve. Um, All kinds of doubts, scientific doubts, political doubts, religious doubts, of course, um, impinged. Uh, And that world picture begins to crack up. And one of the reasons it seems to me that people like Shakespeare, Spencer, Marlowe are so creative um, is, is that they are struggling of this dissolving system to try and make sense of the world for themselves.
0: Tell me, Kieran, if you will, why, why did you devote most of your research and your teaching to the Elizabethan period? There are plenty of interesting periods. What what, what makes that period so special in your mind, and what would you have picked had you not picked? <laughs> <Yeah>. Well,
1: <laughs> I made a decision, <laughs> uh, without thinking about it at all, in a day in September 1974, And I went into somebody's uh, office, one of our professors then, fully intending to do something on the Fenians and 19th century Ireland. And by the end of the hour, he had persuaded me that these things are are being done already and there's far more interesting things to do. So I fell into it by accident. That's the truth. So it was under-researched. um, yeah, yeah. Was, that was the yeah. sort of thing. But I, I take a very um, a liberal and open-minded view uh, about periods in history. I think every period in history is interesting. I think some are harder than others, and some that look to be easy are deceptively easy and are very hard to do, and I feel that about modern or contemporary history. very hard to step back from it. Um, but I, don't, I wouldn't like to say that there's a period... Uh, That I think is more interesting than another. I I think the historical mind will find things that are interesting because it's all about the process of change. And that change might be slower in the 8th century than it is in the 20th century, but it is about change and inexorable change that, you know, we move our history. Uh, We're to blame for this, you know.
0: I must say, I disagree with you probably for the first time in this talk. (laughs) I think some periods are obviously more interesting than others. Ah, And one of my kind of beefs perhaps with the education system is I think they tend to focus on some of the uh, the rather more tedious parts of the uh, last 2,000 years. Well, what do you think about the way history is taught in secondary schools? And what should somebody who's doing history in secondary school now, what should they keep with them when they go to third level, and what should they
1: forget? Oh, no, that's a very hard question. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, I think the um, teaching of history, certainly in the senior cycle, has uh, improved greatly with the recent curriculum, which I'm happy to say I'm very involved with. I'm not responsible for it, but I, I, I found it a great experience, and I learned a great deal from my colleagues who were working on that. Uh, and I think the emphasis here on um, constructing history, on doing case studies, on analysing history by breaking it up into key themes and key personalities and so on, shows people, um, those who who are engaged with learning it, that is to say, that the contingent nature of historical change, that is to say, the almost accidental way in which change works. I say almost accidental, I prefer contingent because it's one thing touching another and touches the next thing. And I, th- I think uh, that's been the emphasis on the contingency of history has been very useful there. Um, inevitably, uh, at second level, um, it, where there are uniform state exams, um, there has to be a kind of uniform mode of assessment. And that uniform mode of assessment tends to be supported by uniform textbooks. Now, I have no objection to the use of textbooks um, at second level because they are, in a way, central to this. As long as the textbooks do, as they now do, emphasise the constructive nature of historical thought. But, um, coming from second to third level, I think dish the textbook and move away from it. and I think one of the hardest things that uh, several of those who've been successful at second level um, find themselves confronted with in early third level is that w- we want to take away the crutch of the textbook. Uh, and we don't have any fixed answer for, th- for this. Um, I, I say to my students when I'm uh, addressing them first, they should learn how to treat books with the disrespect they deserve. Uh, books are only arguments. And they are not, um, you know, storehouses of universally ex- agreed fact, and they are just um, things, arguments written by living or people who were living not that long ago, and they should be seen as that. Well, I know that some undergraduates have thought that. <laughs> that anybody who's written any author of a book is dead by definition because the book is, is kind of a, a solid <laughs> monument. <laughs> uh, so that's what I would suggest, yeah.
0: And what do you think it's about true. the government's uh, suggestion, or the suggestion, I don't know quite mm-hmm. who's made the suggestion, mm-hmm. but it's a serious one, to, um, to end the compulsory teaching of history yeah. at Juniors. Oh, it's more uh-huh.
1: than a suggestion. Uh, it's a policy. Uh, And it's a policy that um, really um, has grown up over previous administrations. My understanding is that the current Minister of Education, um, Sean McHugh, is taking um, a slightly more critical attitude toward it. It's not primarily an attack on history. It's an attempt to reconstruct the entire junior cycle uh, and to take out of the entire junior cycle um, um, things that were regarded as elements of it and then instead to emphasise skills. Now, I'm not going to get involved in the educationalist row about this, and by the way, those who are pushing the policy get very snooty uh, about (laughs) university uh, academics saying, you know, what's going on. But I want to make this point, that even if you were to take, um, say, French out of um, the curriculum, uh, that would be bad. If you were to take something, let's say, ludicrously, if you were to take maths out of the curriculum, which they have no intention of doing... That would be bad. It would mean that you wouldn't have French and you wouldn't have maths. If you take
0: history out you of it... You mean you, society, yeah, because, because it's not the, being uh, taught. You, yeah. Have yeah. It. Uh,
1: you might be able to catch up mm. later on and bone up on your French. Mm. If you take history out of it, it's not that people won't get history. They'll just get it elsewhere. And the risk is they'll get it in all kinds of conflicting um, ways, avenues, that they will be bombarded with... And they, the risk is they will they will accept this without the critical tools that a teaching of history can give you. And I think the risk there is more grave than ever. Uh, because it, you don't stop absorbing history just because you don't think about it. I mean, that's the really scary thing about it is, as I was saying at the outset of this talk, the more implicit your attitude to history is, you say, oh, I don't care much about it. I, you know, I just go on and do my stuff. The more you're absorbing it, and it's it, it's it's the very people who think they're not interested in history mm-hmm. who are actually thinking historically, as it were, uncritically of it. And those who say I'm engaging with it are going to be critical and say, Why should I have to believe this?
0: So history frees you from history. Oh, I think that's the end. That's, that's, that's a lovely way of you. putting it. I yeah. think
1: I think that's a, a, a very good way of putting it. That the purpose of historical education is to free you from history. yeah, And you never actually do it. I mean, it's going to get you in the end. In yeah. <laughs> <And> the long <laughs> run, we're all dead. In the, it's the going long run, you. we're all history. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're all history. But in, it's going to get you. In. But you can put up a fight for it. And I, and I think the study of history is, in that way, liberating.
0: Now, I'm going to ask you, Good. just to, 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 to finish it off, mm-hmm. an appallingly tabloid question, but, <laughs> you know, why not? Who... In history, would you most
1: like to have met? <laughs> <laughs> now, no, you see. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll answer that in a different way. Who would I be afraid to meet? <laughs> well, who word. would you be afraid to meet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christopher Marlowe. Uh, Christopher <laughs> Marlowe was an absolutely fascinating figure in this. Now, I, I was talking about Shakespeare's generation as being, you know, people who were grappling with the dissolution of this worldview. Well, Marlowe is the one who grappled with it, and astonishingly with me. I think he would have been in punk rocker in the 20th century. And he truly is an avant-gardist and a frightening fella who, (laughs) it would have been very interesting if he hadn't been killed in a duel or a fight over a bill at the age of, well, all rock stars should die at 27 and so on. Um, He would have been a fascinating character. But I, I'd be afraid of him, but I'd still like to have met him. <laughs> Marlowe, the Sid Vicious of Elizabeth yeah. In London, yeah. 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 Now, the reason I prefer to spin the question that way rather than to say I'd love to have met Harold Macmillan or whatever is that I want to get away from, this, the, the, again, the of sentimental um, side of history that suggests, oh, wouldn't so-and-so have been good company? Talleyrand, wouldn't he have been an intelligent conversation and so on? That's self-indulgent. Um, the, the reason I wanted to say pick on someone like Marlowe, and there are plenty of others I, I could do, um, um, Calvin would be a pretty scary person to me, it's because they are um, reflectors of profound historical change.
0: But I thought you might pick somebody whose motivation is not clear. Mm. You know, because sometimes we look back and we, we, we project all kinds of motivations onto yeah. people, and we know deep down that we're not quite capturing what makes a person. And ten minutes in that person's company might you know, tell you more than a hundred books I wonder. And then there are other people where you, one can't do that at all. You wonder. No, you don't I think.
1: wonder that. Now, I go back to the problem of language and concept. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, people say if you went back to the Middle Ages, um, you'd be struck by smell and sounds and so on. Oh, that's all true. But really, um, their mode of thinking would be to us, unless you study it, almost unintelligible. So if you were to, say, have um, um, a conversation with Don Scotus or Aquinas or something, we'd live in two different worlds. I mean, it just be so. E- even assuming yeah. we were proficient yeah. enough in, in their Latin. Yes. You know.
0: yeah. So a pint with William the Conqueror is not uh, a uh, no, <laughs> no. strong birds. I mean, the,
1: there is a tendency to, to, to think of it in terms of 20th century things, mm. where they're more or less in the same, um, same worldview. But again, that's deceptive. I was saying earlier on that um, there are periods in history that are deceptive in, the, in their ease. Like it's very, we could complain, early modernists like us could complain that you need to have certain um, technical skills um, to get into the study of history. Uh, whereas in, say, the 20th century, 20th century political history, you've got to read newspapers, you got to read parliamentary debates and so on. But the real difficulty li- lies in interrogating things that seem familiar, but which aren't. Uh, and That, I think, is intellectually demanding. So there are you know, different skills required in different periods. Different I think, period, ultimately, yeah. it's easier, once you have the skills, uh, it's easier to come to terms with, never fully to understand, but to come to terms with the early modern mind. In terms of things, I understand what mm. virtue is. I understand what honor is. Um, And as a student of the Victorians, I really have an idea now what they meant by duty, but I'm less, less confident that I understand the mentality of, say, the mid 20th century.
0: Kieran Brady, thank you very much indeed.